0: My name is Jan Scruggs. I am the founder of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in beautiful Washington, DC. The big black wall of names, absolutely beautiful. It has a mirror-like uh, finish to it. And you can actually see your face among the names. Uh, it's very much a national icon. Well, in getting this memorial built, I traveled all over the country and met many people. and. Uh, one person particularly interesting is uh, Mr. Rothblatt. James Rothblatt. Is that you go by Jim or James? Yes.
1: I usually go by Jim. Okay. Either one or, works.
0: We're going to call you Jim. So you're a real live California native, is that correct?
1: That's right. I'm oh. straight out of Compton, California.
0: Compton, okay. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, you're having a nice time in 66, 67, you got a lot of, you know, girlfriends and everyone's raising hell college and you decide, Oh, well, I think I'll go join the U S army becoming a medic. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you for serving. And uh, medics. Uh, I just, I was very traumatized. I, I our two medics got shot within one, two minutes of each other. Some, Enemy soldier had a scooped rifle and he aimed for the head and one one got shot through the eye, which ruined part of his brain. It doesn't grow back. And uh, the other one got shot through the neck. And he got this. It missed the carotid or artery, but it went for four four inches. It was just absolutely unbelievable. And uh, he was from Puerto Rico. And uh, he said, for the rest of my life, I'm going to meet some very interesting people because. No one else has one of these. <laughs> so uh, tell me, why did you decide to go in the Army? I mean, you could have had a nice time chasing women and all of that sort of thing.
1: Well, I actually had been chasing women, and it got me into trouble, put me on probation in college. Huh. Uh, fell off track for graduation. So I was pretty uh, depressed about it. I've, I didn't want to tell my parents about it, so I took the coward's way out and I joined the army. The recruiter that I talked to said, oh, you have a lot of biology classes mm-hmm. behind you. We'll, we'll, we'll make you a medic, and that way you'll probably work in a hospital somewhere in a lab. So I didn't really read the big print on my right papers when I joined, and it did say combat medic. He didn't mention the word combat when he was talking about medic. Oh, yeah. So, so I wound up uh, at Fort Benning eventually after my medic training uh, with the 199th that you're familiar with as a platoon medic with Charlie Company on uh, 2nd Platoon, 4th of the 12th. Yeah. we uh, And uh...
0: How many times did you actually come under enemy fire where, you know, people were shooting at you individually or at a small group of people in which you were one of them?
1: It's something I've thought about from time to time over the years. And I can really, with few exceptions, the only times I can remember coming under fire are those days where people that I knew were killed. Oh, or or seriously wounded. So, but in terms of just being under fire from you know, I have no idea It's beyond. I can tell you. I can tell you how many I'm sure of. Yeah, that you know, would probably be around twelve to fifteen. But i yeah, it, it's yeah. more than that.
0: Well, you know, the last time I was actually almost the last time I was in a firefight. Sorry. <laughs> We had these medics who were like they were Seventh Day Adventists, and because they were Seventh Day Adventists, there was something about they automatically became medics or non-combatants and uh, conscientious objectors. Yeah, yeah, but but it was you know part of the religion with the the Selective Service Army. Everybody had a, had some little deal going on, but. uh so anyway, this guy gets shot and somebody says, medic, medic, everyone's going, medic, 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 the medic came up. And he says, would you guys please shut up? You don't scream medic. You, I've got a target on my head already. And all you're do- doing is telling him to direct their, their, their rifle fire right, right at me. You, know, you got to stop this medic, medic, medic stuff. This is not a movie you know so I, that really made quite a, quite an impact on me yeah you know <laughs> medic get six or eight guys yelling medic that's not going to have a good outcome and that maybe that's why we lost our two medics uh back in May of 1969 so tell me about as we look at your career and try to dissect James Rothman, the real James Rothman. Tell us about your uh, brief career, but interesting career. Driving a bus.
1: Well, I I had got out of the army, went back to school, got my bachelor's degree. Uh, it was in biology, and then I got a teaching credential, and then I couldn't get hired. So, uh, but I did wind up getting a job as a school bus driver. And uh, 1975, fall of Saigon. I was a bus driver, driving school kids, but for a, a uh, bus company associated, and we got contracted by whoever to pick up the Vietnamese that were coming straight out of Southeast Asia at the El Toro Air Station and drive them down to a tent city that was being developed at Camp Pendleton. Um, so. Uh, I got to an amazing point in my life. I got to be uh, in the first lead bus and the first convoy on a foggy night, middle of the night following a highway patrolman in the left lane from Orange County down to Camp Pendleton with a busload of Vietnamese behind me. And so we we drove buses all night into the next day. The, The only bus that I can remember was the first one. It just made a real impact on me, uh, especially uh, a man that spoke perfect English. He was a doctor sitting behind me as I'm driving down the freeway behind this highway patrolman. Uh, and he's telling me how thankful he is to the American people for allowing him to come to this country. That they, he hopes that they, we, they make us proud that they're being here and that someday they'll be able to return to their country. And so it really made an impact on me. I mean, figure the adrenaline, the situation in the first place, Vietnam vet driving a busload of Vietnamese in Southern (laughs) California. So my my connections to the Vietnamese kind of community in Southern California goes from there. And you're largely responsible for that. I, I hold I blame you for that. Uh first met you at the dedication of the statues at the wall and Veterans Day 1984. 84 when Reagan was there, yeah. Right. And and that was an experience all by itself. But I was a school counselor by then. I had a counseling credential and courses toward a license. And I was seeing all the pain left over from uh, 17 years after I'd served, seeing people come to the wall and crying at the wall. And I thought, had the thought, well, I'm a veteran. And I see all these veterans with so much pain. And I heard the term from uh, missing in America. And so I thought I'd become a veterans counselor. So I wound up being in a clinic that was had a contract with the VA doing PTSD assessments. And through that, I'm meeting all these Vietnam vets and some of them were so hateful toward the Vietnamese, like some of them wouldn't even eat rice. Like, what is that? (laughs) So uh, little Saigon, largest Vietnamese community in uh, the United States at the time, was just an hour and a half away. So I I organized a caravan. of these vets that hated Vietnamese to go into Little Saigon and see what, uh, how, how they'd take to it because the hatred is not wasn't doing them any good. And so uh, one of the places we went into was a supermarket there. So I got all these Vietnam vets, walk into this Vietnamese supermarket that was big and beautiful. Yeah. And what supermarkets have are beautiful young mothers and wives shopping for groceries for their families. Sure. And so it was hard for these guys to be hateful looking at all these young, beautiful Vietnamese women. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you catch my drift. And um, so their hatred was going out the window real fast. Yeah, And then we walked out of the market and all these men, our age show up because we look like Vietnam vets, a bunch of white guys, surrounded by Vietnamese and so these guys are pulling out pictures of themselves when they were in the Arvins and all kinds of stuff and gave us a welcome like we had never had before and uh, so through that I wound up developing some friendships with the Vietnamese community so it all goes back to you and uh, being successful in developing the wall and me. Decided that I'm going to be a, a vet counselor and the vet counselor, introducing them to Vietnamese in our community, uh, kind of crossed into another culture a little bit, you know. Yeah. we see the military. So yeah. amazing. Anyway, probably droning on here. Isn't it true that you met a, a medic who,
0: uh, had been with, I think, the Vietnamese uh, Ranger
1: unit? Oh, yeah. When we were in Vietnam, we were supposedly providing training to the 5th, from time to time, to the 5th Arvin Rangers. And so we would have counterparts, you know, like machine gunners would have their machine gun counterparts and on and on. So I got to develop a pretty close connection in times we met with Boom. and he's the one that I sent you a photo, and he's the one that actually took that photo. I was learning about selfies back then, so he uh-huh. gave me He was a really nice young man. I became friends with two Arvins over there, and, and what I, while I was friends with two Arvins, my last day in the field, August 1st, um, an Arvin mur- murdered One of the guys out of my platoon, so it wasn't all fun and games. Yeah.
0: Well, the uh, Vietnamese community has been uh, enormously successful overall. Of course, you have a little criminal element here and there, but by and large, I mean (laughs) every time my wife's going to get get her nails done. You can come back and speak new Vietnamese words. I mean, that's kind of an example of an industry that they've changed and be and made these nail treatments and all that thing, that sort of thing, more affordable for the average person. You know, it's very important to some people, not me, but and uh, so I'm I'm impressed by them. And we're now living in a, a world where. You know, I mean, look at the border of the United States and Mexico. We have tens of hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> Everybody wants to come here. <laughs> and uh, so maybe we're doing something right, I don't know. But uh, it's interesting to take take a look at uh, our country and uh, history with immigration and, uh, and 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 the current situation now, not, not only in America, but worldwide. I mean, Europe and many places and, uh, and other locales are just have people begging to come there, like Australia, many of these great places. Uh, and we have just hit a population of four billion. So what. Given your psychological background. Uh, how do you explain the impact of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial? How do you explain. Uh, and that people leave these things there all the time letters to the dead and so forth and uh and and make make a pilgrimage there like you know going to mecca for the muslims or going to uh, i guess rome for the catholics and uh i'm episcopalian i don't think <laughs> i don't think we we go anywhere but uh, anyway what was, what's your uh explanation
1: well i t- I think the the architecture, the fact that it has the names all engraved, that these people, young people, did live once and sacrificed their lives. uh, It was a a citizen army. You know, people got drafted that didn't necessarily want to go, but they still served their country and gave their life. Um, and and you've given the, the memorial itself, everything about it, the, where it's located. and it, 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 You created a magical scene. You know. It's something that you cannot stand among that wall of names and not feel the impact. And for those of us that actually served, and no people in the wall, or like when I was there in 84, back when you could get up above it. And the town was filled with vets and families of the KIAs. And we sat up there for most of three days and nights watching these families come to the wall, the 1967 panels, and reach up and touch names on the wall with tears in their eyes, you know. And I... I just saw all the pain, but how important it was that, that group, all that those vets, that's the first time I ever heard anyone say, welcome home to me. And that was a, an active duty, Black, African-American Army captain, you know, that saw I had my CMB. And just said, welcome home God. And it was just touched so deeply. And I visited the wall on other occasions on business trips to D.C. And every time I was there, there was some something magical kind of would happen. And I'm not into magic, you know. <laughs> but I am into spiritual. It's a, it's a spiritual place, even for those of us that claim to be atheists. Yeah. It's,
0: Agnostics
1: is a big thing. <laughs>
0: Atheists, Whatever atheists have, have their mind up. Agnostic says, well, anything's possible,
1: I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, or as Einstein, it's the awe that we can't understand it. So that, that that's, it's beyond us, you know, it, it is without name. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm down for all of that. It's like, I understand. But there's something that there. When you're there, you can feel it or i could feel it and i know that thousands upon thousands of thousands of other people could feel it i mean there's books written about it not all of them by you you yeah. know it's <laughs> you know what i mean it's just yeah. and i could go on and tell stories about my being there like one a quick one is i was there uh once it's freezing cold it's rainy and I was I was, wasn't dressed appropriately. It was kind of a dreary day in Washington, D.C., but I just wanted to go out and spend time. And there's a, I have a story about a photographer that wouldn't help me, uh, a man that wanted to die in my first death that I experienced over there. But I harbored a resentment toward that photographer for years upon years. Mm. And I was there and this group of school kids comes by in this very freezing cold day. And uh, they asked me if I'm a Vietnam vet. I said yes. And I was standing by the name of this man, James Mac- McElvey, Macleay, And I told them the story about the photography, And then they leave. About 20 minutes later, the teacher that was with them comes back and starts crying to me saying I could have been that photographer, that he used to be a photojournalist, and he wouldn't have helped me either. And so there I am, standing there in this freezing cold rain wall, just me and this guy that claims that I just told the story that would have been about him, and I'm trying to put him back together again. (laughs) I'm the one that was supposed to be messed up. You know what I mean? It's like...
0: Yeah. Where else would something like that even happen? Yeah, it was such a strange, strange situation, strange war, <laughs> strange time in history. <clears throat> so many things were going on back home, you know, and civil rights and you know other issues, and and uh, we were better for as a country for Vietnam, I suppose. We probably learned some lessons. One lesson is to be really careful before you get yourself involved
1: in this stuff here. Well, so, I, I feel like I'm a better person for having survived it. You know, it came with a hell of a cost for others and, and does still in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, I like myself much better having survived it than I when I, when I look back at myself before I went into service in the first place. Yeah. I became a better person. Yeah. Well,
0: I have no regrets. I'm very proud that I served. And for me, my whole life has <laughs> revolved around my 12 months in Vietnam and, and getting wounded. And uh, oh, by the way, the, the, uh, when I really got wounded in Vietnam, I took, I took my uh, army poncho and I put it behind my spine because I figured I was going to get shot that day. And of course, of course, I was. <laughs> but the, it, the army poncho stopped. Uh, quite a bit of shrapnel, including a piece the size of a golf ball. And uh, I think it might have severed my spine. And speaking of golf balls, Mr. Rosen Rothblatt lives in beautiful uh, Palm Springs, California, vacation paradise for all these L.A. people, right?
1: Right, and uh, over 100 golf courses, and who cares if there's a drought in Southern California?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, crazy stuff. Well, we want to thank you. For your advice, and uh, we will be talking again. Thank you again. You're fantastic.
1: Thank you, and thank you for your friendship.